I'm very thankful to hear that you all are having an Old Testament reading and reading through parts of the Old Testament, having a New Testament reading and reading systematically through the New Testament. Um, I think that's wonderful. There will be all kinds of benefits that the Lord will provide through that, that you might not be able to see right away, but over the years the Lord will use powerfully. I'm very thankful to see that happening at home in the church where I'm a pastor. Uh, we're going through First John in the sermons on the Lord's Day. Uh, we've made it to First John chapter 2. And, and here um, we've paused and are doing some work here in, in, this, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Let me ask you this. Those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, isn't it true of you that deep inside of you, where the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, granted you the new birth, has worked saving faith and repentance unto life in you, isn't it true that you love God and you love other people, especially the saints? Yet always, despite that being what's inside of you, always in your flesh you're tempted to all kinds of sin and are, and are often succumbing to that temptation and sinning. And that indicates that in your flesh, in that sinful flesh, there is a lack of love for God and lack of love for other people, despite that love truly being in you. Well, part of the good news that the Bible teaches us is that having sanctified us initially in Jesus Christ, our Savior, setting us apart as holy unto himself, God now continues that good work of sanctification carrying it on to completion all the way until our Lord Jesus comes back, when it will be entirely completed. He is pruning us, right? So that we will grow not according to our natural pattern, but according to how he wants us to grow, and so that we will not bear little fruit, but will bear much fruit. And he is not allowing us to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but he is transforming us by the renewing of our minds. He is working powerfully in us that we may put to death the flesh and walk by the Spirit. He's working in us all the time to, to help us love God and love our neighbor. He's doing this primarily by the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, as the Holy Spirit uses the scriptures to do that work in our hearts. Now, the, the Lord teaches us that all matters of righteousness and sin, all matters of right and wrong, are essentially love toward God or hatred toward God, love toward him or lack of love toward him. I'll read to you the well-known verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And that's joined to another commandment like it later, but in that place, love for 
your fellow men is not mentioned. There it's just, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, shall love the Lord your God. All matters of righteousness or sin, right or wrong, are matters of love to God. But And, and so one of the th- ways that the Lord helps us through his word is by setting all of his commands toward us, what we're to do and what we're not to do, in the setting of love, in terms of love, so that all matters of what we are to do or, or to refrain from doing are terms, are, so we can be, can be understood as love or hatred, love or lack of love. And then within that, we're taught that things can be categorized. Matters of love and lack of love, righteousness and sin, can be recognized as being in different categories. One of those being that love can be explained as being in two categories, as the Lord Jesus did when he took what we just read from Deuteronomy and he combined it with something else from God's law and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So you can see that the Lord is helping us to understand that these matters of love can be seen as being in two categories. Love for God and love for other people. Then, of course, another way that these that matters of love and lack of love can be categorized is by seeing that it comes in ten categories, right? Because the next thing our Lord said was, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, all the law and the prophet, all the law and the prophets provides many more details than is found in just the Ten Commandments. And yet primarily he's referring to the Ten Commandments so that all matters of love toward God and love toward other people can be categorized into ten categories, the Ten Commandments. Each one of those commandments standing at the head of a category and referring to all things of that kind. And learning about those categories, the love for God and love for other people, as well as those ten categories in the Ten Commandments, that can help us tremendously in understanding what is it that's going on in me when I'm so tempted to to do these things, when I'm tempted to commit these sins I've done so many times, but I, I know I'm not, I know I shouldn't, when I'm committed to neglect these things I've neglected so often, but I know that I shouldn't be neglecting. Well, then understanding them in these 10 categories is a lot of the work of the Lord in us. But you know, there are other ways that the Lord shows us that matters of love toward God can be categorized. One less well-known one comes up here in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to take that up just now and see how our Lord teaches us about love and lack of love, not in this place in two categories, nor in ten, but in three. So 1 John 2 Verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father 
is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So see that this passage is talking about love over against hatred or lack of love. The Lord commands us not to love the world, neither to love the things in the world. And the Lord explains that if a man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the Lord then equates love for the world with lack of the love of God the Father. More specifically, love for the lust of the world equating to lack of love of God. Now, we can count on the fact that this doctrine right here, written to us by the Lord's Apostle John, is useful for sanctification. Our need, having been set apart unto the Lord in the first place, to be cleaned up and further cleaned up and cleaned up some more from the sin in our flesh, the need for that to be done in us on an ongoing basis, this is sure to be helpful for. The, it'll, it's helpful as we learn it, as we consider it. Now, reading quickly over it one time, it's not that that's unhelpful. But what's really helpful about this kind of passage is if you really think about it, take it in, internalize it, people say, make it part of you, or in the language of the psalm, hide this word in your heart, and then what is it? That I may not sin against God. This kind of thing from the Bible is useful for that, for our sanctification. So let's, 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 learn, let's learn something of this, that it may be used of the Holy Spirit in that work. See how this passage shows hatred or lack of love divided into three categories. Three aspects to the world's lust. Three aspects to love for the world, which equates to lack of love for God. See the three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now, we know this divine analysis of lust or covetousness or desire. We know it's to aid us in sanctification because you see that it comes as part of this exhortation, do not love the world and the things of the world. And this is part of what's said there in support of that, to help us. You know, our Lord commands us, do not love the world or the things in the world. But then he doesn't just give us bare commands with nothing else to help us. The Lord's compassionate toward us. He knows that we need more than that. It's true of me. I suppose it's true of you. Isn't it true that you don't need merely to be told what to do and not to do and that's the end of it? You're perfect? Oh, I need to be told what to do and not to do and then I need lots more help than that. Well, this is some of that help. We know that it's going to be helpful for that. Our dear Lord Jesus knows how sorely we are tempted, and he knows how often we're tempted. 
to love the world and love the things in the world. But the will of God is that we not love the world and the things of the world. And so it is great love and great wisdom from him that both commands us not to love the world and then explains that this love for the world can be understood in three categories so we can understand it better and resist it better. Isn't it true that things you don't understand tend to bowl you over, tend to overwhelm you? Whereas things that you do understand do not intimidate you so much. Isn't it true that an army with good knowledge of the enemy will tend to do much better than an army that doesn't know its enemy? Uh, it is much more useful for us, much better for us to know the lust of the world and so be able to stand against it than to not really know what's coming until it's already defeated us. See that this threefold love for the world is not a new observation, but is as old as our first temptation and sin. I'll speak to you now for a moment from Genesis chapter 3. I hope that you have learned or are learning that about 95% of the time when you want to understand well something in the Bible, you're going to find yourself paging back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, because so much of what is foundational to understanding God's gracious dealings with us sinners is to be found there. There are three aspects to the world's lusts, as John wrote us in 1 John. There also seem to be three aspects to Adam's and Eve's lust, desire, covetousness that was our first sin then. Genesis chapter 3, what we're after is mostly in verse 6, but I'll read you Genesis 3 verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. And note, that's the end of what is correct about what she says. After that, she seemed to be making it up. Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, etc. See, there were three aspects to Adam's and Eve's covetousness or sinful desire or sinful lust. I never noticed this in all the years of being a Christian and reading over these things, but that observation was made in one of the commentaries I read, the JFB, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. 
And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's true. That is clearly divided into three things. And then the more I thought about that, the more I thought, this is a very helpful observation for us Christians, that what John was writing to us, that we would use for the purpose of not loving the world and its lusts, well, that's the very thing that was going on with us and sin at the very beginning. And then my wife said something uh, along these lines. Well, of course it is. You know, yes, it's very helpful to see that connection and realize, you know, the devil has been tempting us with a certain method or certain kinds of things, the same then as now and as always. See how as Eve looks at that fruit, and as this sinful lust or desire or covetousness begins to form in her, see that what she's taking note of is that this is good for food. And notice that she sees that it's pleasant to the eyes. And then notice that she sees it's to be desired to make one wise, or, as the devil put it, she'll then be like God. Well, that is, that is very similar to the three things that we read in 1 John. Now, in 1 John, those three things are stated, but not much is said about it as to understanding what exactly he means. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. But you can start to see pretty easily without too much thinking about it that that middle one both refers to the eyes and that that third one, pride, is stated in First John. And when you think about Eve thinking, I'll be like God, you can get to the realization that's pride pretty easily. And as to the first one, she's seeing that this is good for food it's going to be pleasurable in the body, the lust of the flesh, they do seem to run parallel. Now, none of the value of this doctrine hinges on how exactly parallel they are or how good my observations are about their correspondence. Um, because both of these things are true, whether whether I'm seeing rightly how they correspond or not. But it sure seems to me like he's talking about very much the same threefold lust. So let's, let's make some observations about, about what happened there with the devil and with Eve. Well, the sin is not in the object desired. When you're talking about whether you're loving God or loving the world, whether you're acting loving toward other people or, or whether you're hating others, the, the actual object is not where the sin or the hatred or lack of love comes in. Because it is not sinful to desire to eat fruit. Fruit is good. God made fruit. It's to be eaten. There is no sinfulness in the object itself. Nothing inherently evil about eating fruit. Also, the sin is not in the basic desire. The basic desire is God-given. Why is it that Eve and Adam have any desire to eat anything? 
Well, they were created that way. Their desire to take food and put it in their mouth and, and, and knowing that they'll enjoy it, that's, that's created by God in love for us. That's nothing sinful. The desire to look at something that God has created and enjoy looking at it because you find it beautiful, there's nothing sinful about that. The desire to learn something that will then make you better, that having learned it, you'll then be better off than you were. The desire possibly to gain something by which you will be better off and worthy of more respect or honor. Those, those things are not evil. Those desires themselves are not where the sin was in Eve and in Adam. The sin comes when we desire what God has not ordained for us to have. When we start desiring what rightfully belongs to someone else and not to us. Now, that comes out real, real clearly in the commandment, right? The commandment, when you state it real briefly, says thou shalt not covet. But the commandment really is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor thy neighbor's house, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. There's where the sin comes in. It's not that it's sinful to desire to have a wife. It's not that it's, that it's sinful to long to have a house. It's that when, that when that longing and craving is for your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's house. Well, so it is here with Eve, although you might not have thought of it, that fruit doesn't belong to her. The fruit belongs to God, and he hasn't given it to her or said she could have any. All the other fruit belongs to God also, but he's given it to her, so in effect, it's hers and she may eat it. But not that. The fruit on that tree belongs to God, and she is craving it in those three ways mentioned. She's longing for that fruit, and it is not hers. Not only is it not hers, but in this case, God has expressly forbidden her to eat it. So not only is it just generally speaking not hers, but she's expressly forbidden from having it. This can also come sometimes in the form of, of, of that God has ordained for you to have this thing. It's just that he's only ordained that you have a reasonable amount of it. And once you've had a reasonable amount of it, if you just keep craving it, just keep longing for it, then it becomes this sinful covetousness, not because of the thing, but because of the craving for excess of it that God has not ordained. Now, this temptation that we're seeing here in the case of Eve and Adam, um, the temptation the devil provides has something to do with, with making us think that because the thing is wholesome itself, that then any of our desire for it is also wholesome. Fruit is good, and so whatever kind of longing or, or desire you have for it must also be good. Temptation also tells you 
that since your desire for it is God-given and essentially wholesome originally, then any desire you have for something must make it okay. You know how this comes across so often in our popular culture? Uh, This feels good, so it must be right. We've all agreed that this is something we really like. So therefore, it must be good. It must be okay. Um, Temptation comes to us in that form. Temptation would tell Eve, this is a good thing. So me lusting or craving it is good. This is pleasing to look at. And it's good to look at pleasing things. I look at pleasing things and enjoy it all the time in this garden. And so it must be good for me to be able to look at it. That's what temptation told Eve and what it tells us as well. You see then that Adam and Eve succumbed to this temptation. Eve first, and then Adam also who was with her. And you know what the New Testament tells us, then we all sinned also in Adam, according to God's reckoning, which is exactly right, we all sinned in Adam. And, and therefore, we need to really understand ourselves as to have been there. We were, in a sense, there with Adam as he ate. We were, we in a sense, succumbed to this temptation. And the devil knows that. And he is perfectly willing to deal with us throughout all the thousands of years of our history as those who have sinned in Adam and are susceptible to the same kind of temptation. Now, this temptation that's that's described in 1 John, this lack of love for God that is a lust of the world, that's a threefold lust, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Well, so then you can see that this has been going on since our first sin and for our first temptation. But you know what? There's another place in the Bible where threefold temptation comes out, isn't there? Let's look for it in Luke chapter 4. The temptation of our Lord Jesus in the wilderness was a similar threefold temptation. One of the things that's similar about it is that Adam and Eve had no sin in them, as our Lord Jesus had no sin in him and does not, still does not, never has, and never will. But also, you see, it's a threefold temptation. And look how you can see right away that it is of a similar nature. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Okay, so right off the bat, the first temptation 
is a matter of eating something. Okay, this looks like it's going to have some correlation here. But Jesus answered him saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Well, look at that. This second temptation is a matter of him being shown things that he can then see. Okay. Verse 8, Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for here. from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. The third temptation. Interesting. I, I, didn't, I didn't see any correlation of this when I was first thinking this through. Eventually I, eventually I came to, to, to look at it like this. We've seen in 1 John pride, the pride of life. And a lot of the classic commentaries will talk about that wanting to be seen as being in a high class, as in the upper class or in the upper crust of the upper class, the, the, the idea of somebody wanting to dress very splendidly in the old days, wanting to have a fine carriage in six or, or, or carriage in four, whatever that was, or in our day, of course, you know, having a fancy new car, that kind of thing, so that people will see you, think of you as higher than you really are, um, as, having some, as, as kind of trying to puff yourself up like some of the animals do, to give the appearance that you're bigger than you really are. That kind of pride of life. And then over in Genesis 3, where we just read, what is it the devil is tempting Eve with? that rather than being like she is now, not knowing what God knows, so that she can't be like God, he's tempting her with finding out what it is that God knows so that she can be like God, so that she can be higher than she is now, so that she can get puffed up and be more like God. And, and look what's, what's, being, what's Jesus being tempted with here. When the Lord Jesus came, it was the will of the Father that he come in the form of a servant, that he have no great appearance that would cause people to desire him. It was, it was the will of the Father that when he came into the temple, what he was going to do was come in and show his zeal for the Father's house by purifying what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, he would come in there and he would teach the truth, confront the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees. But how? But the devil was tempting him to come to the temple in a different way, uh, to throw himself off the highest point in the temple, at which the devil said, the angels will come and catch you, 
And then think what, think what people would think of the Lord Jesus then. He would not be somebody that everyone despised and rejected. He would be then considered um, a person worthy of all glory, a person ready to raise an army and throw out the Romans. This was a temptation, apparently, for Jesus of Nazareth to take a higher station than what it was the will of God for him to have at that time. That takes a little thinking through. It's a little bit sophisticated, but I think that's part of the idea. And so the Lord Jesus was tempted with these things. But of course, what the Lord Jesus did was to answer every temptation by quoting God's law as applied to those different temptations. He did not succumb to temptation as Eve did and as Adam did and as we did in Adam. But instead he resisted and was righteous. He did not act with any lack of love toward God, but acted with full love toward God perfect obedience toward him. He didn't sin, but maintained all righteousness in love. Now, because the Lord did not succumb to that temptation in any of those three aspects, because he did not act in covetousness, in sinful desire, in lust, because he did not, then he was not deserving of death. Now, Eve and Adam ate the fruit. We ate it in them and by them. But the Lord Jesus did not eat the fruit. He did not succumb to the temptation. And as you know, by the Holy Spirit, he was conceived in the womb of the virgin, showing that he is not considered to be in Adam himself, He is not in Adam, not reckoned as being in Adam, not sinful in Adam. And then he did not commit the sin of Adam. So he qualified then to be the new Adam. He is the Adam who, when the devil tempted him in one way, did not sin. Tempted him another way, did not sin. And in yet another way, did not sin. Sin. Now, all who are in Adam must die for their sin. We lusted, we coveted, we stole, we ate in Adam. And all who are in Adam must die. Now, that that death is going to take a terrible form. Those in Adam in the last day will be thrown into the lake of fire for everlasting torment. Now, that eternity in hell will be just. Those who sinned in Adam deserve that, and all who are in Adam on that day will receive that. But think of Christ as the new Adam. He is not deserving of that punishment. And so all who are in him by God's reckoning instead of in Adam will not go to the lake of fire for everlasting death, but will be with the Lord for everlasting life. 
And by God's grace, that, that's what will be deserved. It's dispensed by God's grace, but it's deserved in Christ. He deserves it, and those who are in him get to receive it by God's grace. Through, And that connection, of course, by, with, by, with Adam is something like, you know, by natural descent. But that connection with Christ is through faith. It's not through, you know, doing enough good things to where you're then considered in Christ instead of in Adam. It's through trust, belief in Christ. Then you're considered as being in him and on the day of judgment are treated accordingly as in him instead of as in Adam. Now, what, what the Lord Jesus did in that time of temptation, where in all three ways he loved, showed his love for God and love for his fellow men instead of showing hatred for God. What that, what that, what that did then made it to where he could die and it wouldn't be what he deserved for acting in lust. You know, he did die. He died nailed to the cross. And when he died, you understand, it was not for lust of the flesh. He died, but it was not for... Let, 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 me, let, me, let me back up. I, 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 said that, I said that wrong. When he died on the cross, he did not die for his lust of the flesh. When he died on the cross, he did not die for his lust of the eye. He did not die on the cross for his pride of life. He had none of those things, having resisted the temptation and maintained love. But he did die on the cross for those things. He died on the cross for the lust of the flesh for those who lusted of the flesh. He died on the cross for the lust of the eye, for those with lust of the eye on their record. He died on the cross for pride of life. Died on the cross for my pride of life, not for his. He died for the hatred of God that he never had himself, but took upon himself on behalf of others. So you see this in the temptation of the Lord Jesus, which he resisted, then qualifying himself to be the substitute to save others. So now think of these three things in your own struggle with sin. You know, there was a thing I mentioned that was alike in the temptation of Eve, the temptation of our Lord Jesus. Eve and Adam had no sin in them at the time, and our Lord Jesus had no sin in him. And that's why, as I understand it, they got the in-person attention of the devil himself. He came and tempted them because they had to be tempted from outside themselves. Not so with you and me today, right? The devil is working in this world, but he doesn't have to come and personally deal with every one of us, does he? Because there's sin right in our own flesh. Desires that come up right from inside of ourselves. As, as is explained by James, 
And as is testified by Paul, Romans chapter 7, you know, in, in, in my mind, in the inner man, I love God's commandments, but there is a different law at work in the members of my body. And we understand how that is. The temptation comes right up from inside. Can't get away from it, because wherever you go, it goes with you. Doesn't mean it's not right to flee temptation, but you cannot flee it in every sense, because it goes right with you. And so the temptation comes up in our flesh. But when it does, then there's help for you in the things we're looking at today. Starting in the first John passage and in the, in our, in our true history in Genesis 3 and in, in the true history of what the Lord Jesus did is in Luke chapter 4. There's help for us there. Because this is going to happen, right? Now, this is going to happen before you get out of here, probably, right? If not, it's definitely going to happen on the way home in the car. And if possibly you avoid it until you get home, there you'll be at home and it'll come up then. And if by some highly unlikely occurrence, you're not really tempted in this way until tomorrow morning, as soon as you get to work tomorrow morning, then it will happen for sure. Right from within your own flesh, you'll be tempted to act not in love toward God, but as if you just hated him. To act not in love toward other people, but as if you just despised them and cared only for yourself. In love toward the world and its lusts. You'll be tempted in that way. You have been many times before, right? And it's coming. Uh, it's coming just right soon. And you're not sure exactly when. And the temptation may come when you've let your guard down and... And it may come when you're with your dearest loved ones and then comes the temptation to act in hatred even toward them. The Lord has not left us without help. His Holy Spirit is at work in us and the material with which the Holy Spirit works is the word of God and here we have it. When you are tempted next, you'll do well to remember that Whatever it is you're tempted toward, it is essentially a temptation to act as if you do not love God. Also, further analyzed, it's a temptation to act either in lack of love toward God or toward other people. It's helpful to to realize that as it's going on. It's helpful to think, hey, I'm being tempted. You know what I'm being tempted to do? To break one of God's Ten Commandments. Which one is it? And, and if you're able to think to that point, you know, what I'm really being tempted to do here is to steal. Maybe not exactly, but essentially, I'm being tempted to hear God say, thou shalt not steal, and steal anyway. And you know, if you can get to that point, you're greatly helped by that categorization of temptation. So when you are tempted next, remember that whatever is tempting you is a temptation to love the world and the things of the world instead of loving God. It's a temptation to indulge in lust, covetousness, sinful desire of some kind or other. It is either a lust of the flesh, essentially a wanting to please the body with something that you're not entitled to, Or it is a lust of the eye, wanting to delight yourself in something that is not for you. 
or it is the pride of life, wanting to puff yourself up in some way that is not appropriate, not granted to you, not for you from the Lord. So when this temptation comes next, think of it in those terms and let that be part of putting to death the flesh instead of walking, doing its works. When you're tempted, look to Jesus Christ the righteous. Think of him in the wilderness, hungry. (laughs) How hungry? (laughs) Much hungrier probably than we've ever been. He is hungry, but he answers every temptation to the world's lusts with the scripture, specifically God's law, and in so doing maintains love for God. Look to Jesus Christ crucified, because you understand we're talking about fighting this war, warring against the flesh, But nothing we do in our own efforts and actions is going to erase our bad record and make us righteous in in God's judgment. It is only through Jesus Christ taking our punishment on himself that we can then escape the wrath of God. And so when you see yourself in dealing with these lusts and, and resisting temptation, or some other times succumbing to that temptation and sinning, Look to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of that sin. Let me, let me conclude with one more reading through of the passage. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Let's take this to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, how it grieves us to be reminded that in the very first generation we sinned in Adam hearing what Eve did, which is just like what what we would have done, uh, it hurts. It's it's humiliating. And Lord, thank you for it. Thank you for letting us read and remember it. I pray, Lord, that you will help us not to do as she did. I pray that been analyzing how the devil tempted her and how she said, I pray it'll help. And trust that by your work of your spirit it will. Thank you for the reading of of how our dear Lord Jesus did in the similar situation. We praise the name of our Lord Jesus as the sinless one. We pray your blessings on the saints here. That we'll be able to look to Jesus Christ the righteous. We pray your blessings on sinners who have heard this preach today and pray that you'll be merciful to them in Christ. Lord, thank you for a look at that first John passage. Oh, how I need the help. Uh, we all sin many times in many ways. Find myself doing what I don't even want to do inside. Lord, please help us by that. Please help each one here in the daily walk. 
that we may have the victory and walk in love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.